I'm Beth and I am also a person in recovery. Um, I could give you many labels, but codependent is absolutely the primary condition that I um, experienced and pretty much all the other ones are coping mechanisms um, because of my inability to have healthy relationships with and, and my absolute self-loathing. <laughs> um, I, I grew up in Ohio in a small town and I thought I came from a perfectly wonderful family. We looked good on the outside. We were relatively well-to-do. We had a boat. We belonged to a country club. We, you know, we took fun trips. I had five brothers and sisters and I had a lot of fun with them. Um, and, but I knew there was something wrong with me. Like I never had, I was never felt like a victim and I still don't. I have never ever felt like a victim. Be and that is because I, I never felt that everyone else was the problem. I, I, I knew all along that I was the problem. I, <laughs> um, I, I became aware of this when my husband went to treatment for alcoholism um, and I had to go and, you know, meet with the people where, where he was in treatment and everyone there was introducing themselves as from a, some sort of dysfunctional family or other. And I felt like, I want a visitor badge. I don't belong here. <laughs> and, um, and that turned out to be so wrong. Uh, you know, they had me take all these, well, I went there for treatment myself and they had me do all these psychological, the testing and, and stuff. And besides telling me that I have, was an alcoholic and a drug addict and had an eating disorder and was codependent, they said that I had a massive shame-based personality, which wasn't something I had ever heard of. I'm still not sure to this day that, I mean, it's, it's not, a, not something that psychiatrists diagnose people with. I, I thought they just made it up personally. <laughs> but when I look back at how well it fit me, it, it really did. And that's because I see, I've seen a lot of people in recovery over a lot of years. I've been in recovery for 36 years. And um, some people have their one go-to emotion you know, like I've seen a lot of men that no matter what they start to feel, it turns into anger. And some women too, I, I don't mean to, you know, or I mean, it's not really gender or, or sex related, I, but I think a lot of it is culturally conditioned. Like it's just, that's more acceptable for, for men to go to anger. Um, but my go-to is always shame. That's the, you know, whatever I start to feel, it always turns into, it's because I'm a piece of shit. <laughs> whatever out there is going on it's like even if I don't have anything to do with it yeah well I should be doing something about it you know <laughs> um so um I will talk about my childhood a little bit I like I said I thought my family was totally normal but what I realize now um my mom and dad were both emotionally immature my my mom in particular just did such a number on me it, as I look at it now, I think she didn't like being a mom. She wasn't, she, she's an adult child of an alcoholic and not, not, not in recovery from that. And 
I think she had a lot of self-loathing, which is normal for a child of an alcoholic. I mean, it can be normal um, because your parents' primary relationships are not with the family, they're with the bottle, right? So you already feel kind of neglected, excluded, not as important. But um, she she projected her self-loathing onto me. I, I read a lot of psychology stuff in, in the last 36 years and projecting feelings onto someone else is, is a defense mechanism. Like, uh, I don't hate, you know, it's, it's not, it's, it's what narcissists do, it's not me, it's you. And I, and that's what my mom did. It's not me. It's you. And and I just took that all in. Like you're right. It's not you. It's me. <laughs> um, so when I just can tell you how many times, whenever I, you know, kids have needs and wants, and they need attention, and they need help with things, and they, you know, because they're kids. And when I did that, when I asked for things, I was always told, can't you make do just once? You're lazy, selfish, and irresponsible. You know, you and and there was so much gaslighting. So she was being lazy, selfish, and irresponsible. She had this look of was like, don't make me put my book down because she was always reading. That was her escape. <laughs> and um and if you wanted her to put her book down, boy, get ready, brace yourself because she, you were going to get it for that. Uh, um, so I, I learned not to ask for things. I learned that I, and I felt like I don't deserve things because I'm supposed to be able to do it for myself. So therefore I'm inadequate because I'm not capable of doing the things I'm supposed to be able to do. Uh, and, you know, I just absorbed all the crap she was dishing out. I, and it was not good to stand up to her. So um, I read a book about um, complex post-traumatic stress disorder, which is instead of like a trauma coming from some huge event, you know, like being raped or being at war or, or you know, crime victim or even watch it, you know, watching a crime committed against someone else. It's it's more like the water torture of drip, 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 where every single day little parts of you are having indignities inflicted upon you over a long period of time. And um, the book I read said that there's four primary responses that people have to that kind of trauma or any other threat in general, but one is the fight response. And this is what Bill W response was when he came up with the 12-step program, the AA program, you know, that he vowed never to be put down again and to show people that he was better than, you know, and, but that was not my response at all. Um, another response is flight and another one is freeze, but the last one is fawn. And I hated it when I read that because it really sounds weak and measly, but that is what I learned to do because that was the one that was safe. That was the one, uh, like I never got in trouble for holding myself back and hanging my head down and and showing submission. That was that was acceptable. I never got in trouble for that. I got in trouble for all the other ones. <laughs> um, so I learned to be submissive. 
and and to placate and to appease and to people please and um having no sort of internal validation i learned to seek outside validation and that so that's that became like the, you know as we're growing up um our our brain these habits are forming so our brains are you know the neurons that are firing together are wiring together so that that's how i liked i liked what you your reading said about these you know they're compulsive uh, it's because they're wired <laughs> it's like when i'm on autopilot that's where i am and my whole recovery has been about trying to get off of autopilot and live a more conscious life where I pay attention to what's going on right here, right now. And do my old patterns really fit for this situation? You know, maybe not so much because I grew up being hypervigilant. Um, and, and my dad, he, he was just quick with sarcasm and cutting remarks all the time. And you never knew when to expect it. And even my mom, like, I never knew when to expect it because I could not be doing anything. And, you know, I could be sitting reading a book just like she was, but somehow that would piss her off because she thought I should be doing something else, <laughs> you know? And so I, I had this tremendous fear of being blindsided. My, my dad's rule for jokes was that it doesn't matter how much it hurts as long as it's funny. And if you got hurt, he would say, you're too sensitive. So he could say something really mean and then put it on you for being too sensitive if, you, if it hurt. And, um, so um, I, I learned to, to scan my environment all the time to watch out for where the next, you know, where was the next thing gonna come from that was gonna get me. And, you know, uh, there was a lot of fat shaming too. And I, I mean, I, you know, I had some instances of that with, you know, other school children and stuff, um, which is normal. Every kid gets teased, you know, <laughs> every kid gets teased. That doesn't mean that they have trauma that they're gonna suffer from the rest of their life. The traumatic part is that there's no way to process it. Like if I was a kid that got teased and went home and talked to mom or dad and they said, well, you, you know, everybody has flaws and, you know, they're all, everybody has things that they need to work on. That's okay. It doesn't make you a bad person. Uh, you know, um, that would have been one thing, but I, they were, they were also fat shaming me. So of course I wasn't going to go tell them. They'd say, well, you're darn right. You know, <laughs> so, so that I had no processing of it and as a result of that it just all stayed with me forever and I am sorry to admit this but there's not a day goes by that I don't think at least a hundred times about if I look fat if I'm getting fat if I, <laughs> I I mean it's just but I you know I learned to just turn it off pretty quick I just go boring you know who cares I mean <laughs> so, it, it, it's not a big deal um, but I cannot stop the thoughts from popping into my head all the time so, so when I was um I know when I was in kindergarten I um 
I was, uh, my dad fostered sibling rivalry big time because he was very competitive and he wanted the kids to compete and see who was the best. And so I had the same kindergarten teacher that my sister had had the year before me. And, um, you know, of course I wanted her to like me better so I could get dad's approval. And so I, I, um, my sister had actually dropped out of kindergarten because she thought, oh, let's see. I, forget. I, I told the, I told my teacher that my sister had said something bad about her. And I guess they, they called my parents for that. And, oh, I know what it was. I said, my sister said that the kindergarten teacher was a dumbbell. And I told the teacher that my sister said you're a dumbbell. So my parents made me write a note to the teacher that said, I am sorry, I said that I am a dumbbell. And <laughs> which is pretty ironic because I was able to write that in kindergarten when I wasn't even supposed to be able to read yet, but <laughs> and have to write I'm a dumbbell. Uh, but that was like an example of shaming where like I dropped the note on the way to school. I was just too ashamed to carry it. And, and I also remember when I was, I don't know, maybe eight or nine, when my mom scolded us, it was shame on you, shame on you. You're a disgrace. There's no excuse for you. I was told that so many times, there's no excuse for you. And I, really felt like I don't deserve to live. There, there is no excuse for me. I, I'm just here, I'm, I'm eating food, I'm sucking up air, I'm taking up space, and what do I have in return? Nothing, I'm just a detractor. I'm just a big detractor and, and the world would be better without me. And I said to my mom one time around that age, after getting, you know, really scolded and shamed and told that I, I, I said, if I'm so awful, then why did you have me? <laughs> and she's, she didn't even answer me, but I already knew the answer. And it was because they didn't know I was going to be this awful. You know, they had high hopes for me, but I blew it. I, I'm, they got a lemon. I'm sorry. <laughs> I'm just, uh, you know, I don't know if everyone knows that expression, like when you buy a bad car, but uh, it, that's what I thought. Like my parents got a lemon. I'm, you know, I, I'm, I feel so bad for them that they got me. I remember in about fifth grade, we were talking about, somebody was teasing a kid about like a boy liking a girl or something. And the teacher decided to make a lesson out of it. And she said, uh, well, let's, let's go on the, chalkboard here and write down some reasons why a, a boy might like a girl or a girl might like a boy okay this was in the early 60s there was nobody even knew about gay people where I lived I don't think. <laughs> but um so one person raised their hand and said because they're smart okay that's good another person raised their hand and said because they're funny okay that's good I raised my hand and said because they like you and she went what that's no reason and I was like, oh my God, the shame, because first of all, you know, I raised my hand and gave a wrong answer, but 
it made perfect sense to me. I mean, beggars can't be choosers, you know. If somebody, if you're lucky enough to have somebody like you, you better you better go for it because you know <laughs> you take take whatever crumb is offered. That's all you're gonna get because that's all you're worth. And I, so my whole attitude going into dating and everything was that I'm not dateable. I expect to be rejected. I remember tr trying to, you know, I, I went to high school or junior high dances because that's what everybody did. And I remember, I just remember standing there going, you know, there's only two things that can happen here. Either someone's going to ask me to dance and that's going to be terrible or no one's going to ask me to dance and that's going to be terrible. So like, why am I here? <laughs> um, anyhow, I don't know how long I want to go into but uh, my relationship with my husband was very codependent. I, it, it was a whole lot easier, I realized, just to have one, if I could keep one person's approval, I didn't have to worry so much about having everyone else's approval. And right when I, you know, when we got into the relationship, I noticed that well, when we got married, when people started asking questions about like what kind of food do you like or what kind of movies do you like I always I started answering with me and then I would proceed to say what he liked and and I noticed myself doing that and I went hey that's kind of weird and then I just tossed it off with well I guess that's what happens when you get married you know you give yourself up <laughs> like that's normal <laughs> not normal uh, and, and we went when we got in recovery and we went to marriage counseling and the therapist said, how are you feeling today, Beth? And I said, Steve's mad at me. So I answered how Steve was feeling because I thought that was a good enough answer for me. <laughs> well, you know, she said, but I asked you how you're feeling. And I'm like, I'm in my head and going, what a stupid therapist. How does she think I'm feeling when my husband's mad at me? It's not like I have a choice. I'm well, I'm in the doghouse. I'm walking on eggshells. How can you not know that and still be a therapist? Because I had no idea that I could have feelings that were independent and separate from whatever mood my husband was in. You know, if he came home from work in a bad mood, it was my fault because I wasn't enough of a delight to see when he got home that he wouldn't shake that mood immediately. <laughs> right like I'm taking responsibility for other people's moods because I'm not good enough um and yeah just a lot of codependent behaviors um so in recovery uh, oh I went to a codependency treatment thing that was like an, an eight-day inpatient program and one of the group sessions, they were saying something that was really getting to me and I really wanted to say something, but I already know that you don't ever like raise your hand and ask for something because I, you know, had that kind of shamed out of me by the age of five. Um, so I just sat, you know, so this, I do what, this is what I would do. I sit there like and put a tortured look on my face and hope someone notices. Um, because that's that's the only way to do it. You can't ask. So nobody called. They didn't call on me, and somehow I got the nerve up afterwards to say, "Did you see me? Did you want you know?" And she said, "Yes, but I wasn't going to enable you." I'm like, "Enable me? Like that's buying alcohol for an alcoholic. I don't even know what you're talking about." She said, "You were being manipulative in order to try and get your needs met." 
you need to raise your hand and say, I'm hurting and I need to share. That just blew me away. I mean, I was like, I said to her, lady, you could let me sit in there a hundred years and I would never come up with that because I already knew, you know, of all the possibilities I would consider, that one was crossed off the list a really long time ago. <laughs> so um, I don't want to talk the whole meeting, so I'm going to wrap up quick here. But one of the most meaningful analogies came to me when I was talking with um, a man who was a combat veteran and he had PTSD. And this, you know, this was after I'd been in recovery for quite a, quite a long time. Um, and by the way, the whole God thing in recovery to me was just a complete red herring, although it made me feel like something wrong with me. I'm defective. Everybody else gets this and I can't get it. And, you know, it was a whole unnecessary additional shaming that I went through um, in 12-step programs just because of that. Um, but anyhow, so this guy says to me, when I walk down the street, it's not the same as when you walk down the street. He says, like, you're probably going, there's a tree, there's a bird, there's a bush. He says, I'm going, what's behind that tree? Is that bird carrying anything? What's under the bush? And I went, you know, and you can see how those behaviors would be good, good things to be doing when he's in a combat zone. <laughs> and, um, but you can also see how when he comes home, they really impede his ability to enjoy life out of the combat zone. Well, so I grew up in a combat zone. I was always going, what, you know, who, who's hiding that's gonna jump out and say, you're fat, you, <laughs> you know, or, <laughs> or, you know, pulls, you know, oh my God, look how stupid she looks or just, you know, she's an imposter. She, because <laughs> I always thought I always felt like an imposter in almost anything I did. Um, so it made me realize that rather than calling these things character defects, I learned survival strategies to to live in the environment that I lived in, and it happened to be while my brain was wiring, so they got embedded in me pretty deep. But they were not defects of character. They were survival skills. And now that I don't live in that world, they impede my ability to enjoy the world that I'm in now. So that's why I, you know, I need to let go of the old stuff and learn new ways. And, and it's, I mean, it's, I'm not going to shame myself by saying I have all these defects of character and shortcomings. You know, I, I say thank you for helping me get survive my childhood. You know, I, I don't know where I would be without my defense mechanisms because I needed them. I had to defend myself. I wasn't in a safe environment for a child. Um, but out here in the bigger world, it's a lot safer. People are not thinking about me all the time. I only imagine they are. And uh, the old skills don't work because they, they get in the way of my own enjoyment. And so that's my motivation is I want to be able to live in this world the way it is now and have healthy relationships 
and be able to love and to be able to be loved. And so that's why I do codependency recovery. I, I haven't been to a CODA meeting in several years, but I went to CODA meetings for several years at, you know, at one point in my recovery. And um, I'm, it's my first, you know, it's my definitely my first problem. All the other stuff was coping mechanisms for the self-loathing. I mean, you know, I used to do cost-benefit analyses after I went to college and learned what that was. It was like, do I, how much am I give, giving to the world compared to how much I was taking out of it? And I always lost. I always felt like, yeah, you, you know, you, you don't deserve to live. <laughs> and it's just not like that anymore. I realized that maybe somebody's getting something out of what I'm saying. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> um, but people tell me they do, and that, that means a lot. And um, the book I wrote is called We're Not All Egomaniacs, and it's directed to the Alcoholics Anonymous audience. It's combating all the harsh language and the, the, the tough love approach to recovery that is in the big book. Because for people like me, I would have left AA if all I got was that shaming. Um, but it was the, the people in the rooms were, I had some attraction to them and that's, that's what kept me coming back. But the literature was really hard to get through. Anyhow, um, thanks for, for asking me to speak and um, I, I'd like to hear what you guys have to say. So thanks. <laughs>